Callaway Golf can't stop pushing limits, which is how they have managed to be the number one irons in golf for five consecutive years. That's why they used AI to create the new Maverick irons. AI is engineered a flash face cup in every Maverick iron for better distances in your entire set. Each club's center of gravity is positioned to optimize launch and help players find new distances. Get new distance at CallawayGolf.ca. Callaway, the number one irons in golf. This episode is part of Post Media's Reopening Canada series. Getting kids back to school is seen by many as one of the keys to getting Canadians back to work in the wake of COVID-19. But as the first day of school looms, many are worried that the first math lesson of the year will be focused on counting new infections. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I'm joined by National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey to talk about what we've learned so far when it comes to kids and coronavirus, how effective they are at spreading the disease, and what can be done to make a return to the classroom as safe as possible. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Sharon, we're roughly two to three weeks out from kids returning to the classroom across the country, and there are two separate but inextricably linked issues to discuss. The kids and the classroom. So first, we should talk about the kids. And related to COVID-19, what does the science say about kids? Are they seen as big spreaders of the disease? And does their age make a difference? Well, you know, here's the problem. Not all the evidence agrees, but a lot of the experts I've been speaking with recently, including Dr. Chris Labos in Montreal, you know, they're saying if you look at the evidence kind of globally, the younger the child, the less likely they are to be a spreader of the virus. Mm-hmm. In Australia, for example, they did contact tracing after outbreaks in some schools there. And what they found was that the risk of child-to-child transmission was very low. It was around 0.5%. Child-to-adult transmission was also low, but adult-to-adult and adult-to-child was much higher. So What that study suggests is that the virus is mainly spread between adults and from adult family members to children. So we could have spread of the virus in schools, but it might not be the kids who spread it. You know, Mm -hmm. child-to-child transmission and child-to-adult transmission for sure has occurred. There was a study just out of South Korea two weeks ago, I think, that found that household transmission of COVID was high if the, quote, index person, you know, the first person to get the infection was either was age 10 to 19. But kids under 10 were least likely to spread the virus. And this sort of gets into why is it younger kids, you know, children younger than 10 seem to also have a relatively low risk of getting infected. So not just spreading it, but getting infected in the first place. And they also tend to have much milder symptoms than adults or teenagers. And, you know, in fact, they tend to be really much more asymptomatic, showing no symptoms at all. And they're less likely to get hospitalized if they do get it. And, you know, the fatality rate in children is very, very low. So in Canada, for example, we've had one reported death in a child under 19, I believe, and Mm. that's among 9,000 reported deaths. So the risk for children isn't zero, and kids can get severely ill with COVID. In Canada, we've had at least 124 kids under 19 who had to be hospitalized, and I think 23 of them needed ICU care. But they are probably less infectious and less 
likely to spread the virus than adults are. But again, not everyone agrees. Do we know why some studies are showing that? Like, do we know why younger kids spread it less than older kids or adults? Again, there are some theories. First, younger kids may have some kind of biological advantage that makes them less vulnerable to getting infected in the first place. And there's some suggestion that children have fewer cellular receptors for the virus in their upper airways. These receptors are called ACE2 receptors, and they're on the surface of cells throughout our body. And those ACE2 receptors are what the coronavirus latches onto to invade healthy cells. So there's thinking that kids have fewer of those receptors. It also might be that younger kids, they breathe out or they cough with less spores. So if they are infected, they exhale less air and so less virus-laden air. And they're also smaller, so they're closer to the ground. And that makes it harder for adults, for example, to breathe in their infected air. It could also just be that we haven't tested younger kids all that much, right? Mm -hmm. When we went into lockdown, we kind of created this artificial world where we kept our kids at home and we severely restricted their contact with other people and other kids. So there's not been a lot of opportunity for them to get sick and to spread it the way they can spread colds and the flu. But again, you know, COVID seems different from influenza. Kids are very, very efficient spreaders of the flu. But there was a commentary published just this week in the Canadian Journal of Public Health by doctors at Western University in London who said, you know, again, that stereotype that kids are these just germ-spreading machines (laughs) goes back to influenza. And we we worried about that with COVID, right? We thought, okay, this is, we're going to see this with kids too. But COVID seems very different than the flu when it comes to kids. And The Western guys said, you know, they went so far as to say that kids overall remain, as they said, remarkably unimpacted by COVID-19. Is it a case of kids actually less susceptible of getting the virus? Is it a case of maybe like chickenpox where an infection is less severe in young people than it is in adults? Yeah, I know. I kind of sound like a broken record, but again, the the experts don't agree on all of this. And we're hearing actually more concerns that kids are susceptible and as susceptible as adults. When COVID first hit in Wuhan, there's optimism in, in the fact that kids didn't seem to be very vulnerable or susceptible to infection. They are less likely than adults to get seriously sick when they do get COVID. But there was a recent study in Spain that found about 4% of kids and teens had antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that causes COVID-19. So suggesting that that proportion of kids had been exposed at some point in the past, because those antibodies don't tell you you have an active infection, but sometime in the past you were exposed. That compared to like 4 to 6% of adults, so pretty equal. And a few weeks ago, I spoke with David Fisman, who's an epidemiologist with the University of Toronto. And he pointed out that the test positivity rate in kids, so that's the number of cases found per those tested, Mm -hmm. that test positivity rate is no different in Ontario per capita in younger kids than in the 20 to 40-year-old age group. So, you know, the idea that there's something magical about kids that they don't seem to be as vulnerable to the infection doesn't really seem to be the case, at least not in Ontario. It could be a case of we're seeing fewer tests among kids and we just don't have enough research 
out there yet, considering this is a relatively new phenomenon, the COVID-19 pandemic, that we don't necessarily have a clear picture of how it impacts children. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it gets down to just we haven't had really real life uh, scenarios to test kids, right? And, and we've done very limited testing. Most of the provinces, you know, right at the beginning, were very severely limiting who got tested. You have to have symptoms or you had to have been recently traveled outside of the country. So there really hasn't been much testing of children at all. And we do know that certain viruses do cause, you know, milder infection in kids than adults. Mm-hmm. Viruses like chickenpox are milder in kids. The thinking is it relates to their immune response. With COVID, kids seem to be able to mount this more appropriate immune response if they do get infected. But with adults, what we see in severe cases is this really hyperactive, out-of-control immune response in severe cases. It's called the cytokine storm. We do see these rare cases of this multi-system inflammatory condition in kids that people might have heard about. Mm -hmm. The cases kind of look like toxic shock syndrome. The kids have redness inside the mouth and pink eyes and pain in their hands and feet and some fatigue. And the kids get like really, really fussy. But that is very, very rare. And it's easily treatable and most kids will recover. But they seem able to sort of put the brakes on that runaway immune response that adults sometimes have problems with. So that might be one of the reasons why children tend to get milder infections than adults. You mentioned earlier, we haven't really had kind of a a real world scenario for seeing how kids respond to this, partly because we put them in this artificial bubble back in the spring when schools were shut down across the country. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be thrust back into a situation where you have, in some cases, hundreds or thousands of kids in one building in full classrooms. There have been a number of countries who have already done this, who've already had kids return to in-class instruction. Have all of these produced a wave of new cases? Before we look at other countries, we could look first to Canada and, and Quebec, right? They were the hardest hit province. They opened elementary schools everywhere except Montreal back in May. And there was no evidence of a sudden increase in transmission in kids or in the community. In other countries, you know, Denmark was the first country in Europe and they reopened schools back in April. And they didn't see any obvious increase in the growth rate of COVID-19. But, you know, there have been a number of outbreaks in Israel where schools reopened in early May. And two weeks after schools reopened in Israel, there were like 130 cases of COVID-19 in one school alone, a high school. And by June, there were like 200 confirmed cases and 200 other positive cases among students and staff at other schools as well. And the government responded by ordering schools with any cases of COVID to close. And I think the last time I checked about two weeks ago, there were 125 schools in Israel had been closed because of outbreaks. There have been some hit and misses for sure. In the countries that have seen successes, is there anything to account for that? Is it class sizes? Is it masks, vigilant hand washing, or is it other segments of society staying closed and keeping adults from bringing home the virus? We have to be careful when we say who has been successful and who hasn't, right? Because remember, this virus is still new. It's only been around since what, February? Now, I was speaking with Arthur Kaplan, this bioethicist at New York University, who said to me, we have to be really super cautious because four or five months experience with a virus isn't exactly solid experience. But 
when we do look at other countries that were successful, it seems to be a combination of things work best, like keeping class sizes small with pods and limiting contact between kids in different pods or classes. Some social distancing in many of the countries, Denmark and Sweden, for example, kids had staggered recesses and they could only go out at lunch and in recess with their pod and couldn't interact with other kids. And masking for sure seems to make a difference in limiting transmission. In Canada, while BC, Alberta, Ontario and Quebec plans differ in some of the details, we haven't really seen a big push to severely limit class sizes like we've seen in other countries. You know, in Alberta, there are plans for staggered entry times or suggestions for staggered entry times. They're trying to enforce hand hygiene when kids enter the school and enter the classroom. They want to limit the use of certain instruments in band class. There won't be singing. They're asking kids in older grades to wear masks in classrooms. Are there challenges to containing spread when we look at these plans? I think one of the biggest concerns is class sizes, right? In Israel, for example, when they first opened in May, they had smaller classes, smaller groups, what they called these capsules. But then a few weeks later, those limitations on class sizes were lifted, and that's when they saw the outbreaks. Physical distancing was limited at the time, and the outbreaks happened initially during a heat wave when kids were allowed to take their masks off and air conditioning was running constantly. Denmark has had these micro groups of 12 kids per class, and you know they have like minimal contact with others outside their groups. Mm-hmm. They arrive at separate times, they eat their lunch separately, they stay in their own zone on the playground at recess. Norway, similar thing, they limited it to 15 students. The thing with class sizes, if you have 15 students, you potentially have 14 exposed cases if one of those kids gets six, right? If you have 30 kids in a classroom, you have 30 potential exposures. So that just makes it harder to contain the spread. But what's really important is going to be the ability to identify cases when kids become infected, isolate them, trace their contacts, isolate everybody who is infected. That's a little easier to do than, say, a restaurant, right? You have a case in a restaurant, and then you've got to find all those people who were in that restaurant, contact them, get them to a testing center. Well, in a class, you know who those kids are, right? So Mm -hmm. logistically, it should be easier to contain the spread, to test all of those kids in one fell swoop. Yes, in an ideal world, it sure would be better to have smaller class sizes. The epidemiologists all agree on this. But the reality is, you know, we're limited by resources and and teachers and school infrastructure. So as Chris Labas said to me, everyone's on nerve, right? Nobody really knows what's going to happen. And it's very possible we will see cases. But what's going to make the difference is when it happens, are we able to detect them and isolate those students and keep those cases from triggering new outbreaks. You know, and what are the plans if we do have a case in a class, right? Do we shut down the entire class? Do we shut down the entire school? Do we have a plan in place where we have a two-week holiday to allow things to cool down so you don't have this exponential growth in the community? If a community generally has COVID spread under control, does that mean schools will be fine? Or is it the potential for schools to upend any positive outcomes that the community has seen up till now? 
Well, if there's low community spread, then there will be less risk of anyone, a teacher, a student, a staff member, bringing the virus into the classroom, right? In countries that had low community transmission, reopening the schools didn't result in a spike in community spread. There were new surges in community spread in Israel that lots of people say were due to the outbreaks in schools. But Israel, at the same time that they reopened schools, also reopened restaurants and bars and all non-essential businesses, right? So everything was done kind of at once. So it was kind of like a perfect storm, right, to allow transmission to get going again. Looking at the provincial plans across Canada, how quickly could we see whether they've been successful? Obviously, we're talking about a virus that can be spread asymptomatically, can be spread within a few days of becoming infected. Could it take one to two weeks before we start to see problems if they arise? We can't be certain about anything to do with COVID, right? As I said, the ground keeps shifting beneath our feet. But it takes an estimated three to six weeks to detect a change in transmission. So everyone will be waiting nervously Mm -hmm. to see what happens soon after schools start to reopen in the next couple of weeks. Well, I know it's top of mind for all parents uh, across Canada, whether to send their kids back to the classroom and, and how things will go once they're back in the classroom. Sharon, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. Thanks. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirky. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.